Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, can you all hear me through the speakers? Yes. yes. Fantastic. So this is great. Uh, this is our first week with these fancy new microphones that were uh, graciously donated to us by another church. So uh, praise God for that. Um, it's great to, great to be here with you all today as we continue on our, our series. Um, we, we kind of, every start of the semester, uh, we kind of dive into a series about like the things that we stand for here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, right? Uh, and a lot of times we'll walk through our values or uh, things that we believe, things that, that we stand for. And so our series that we've kind of been going through uh, are things that we as Redeemer want to represent us as a church. What we want our church to be, what we want our, uh, the people that are coming to Redeemer Fellowship Church to know to be true about us and about uh, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so we, we, look, we look previously at what it means to be a worshiper, what it means to be a disciple, and then last week we looked at what it means to be a member in that we, we believe these are, are kind of the, the line in which, the order in which things fall as followers of Jesus Christ, that, that we will be worshipers. And from worshipers, we will move on to become disciples. And from disciples, we will move on to become members of the church. And so today, as we continue this, uh, our theme and kind of what we see as the next logical step in, in following Jesus Christ in this Christian life is servant leadership. Servant leadership. Uh, our text for today is going to be John chapter 13. We'll be looking at 1 through 17. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, you can follow along with me. Uh, we also will have it on the screen for you. You can follow along uh, right there as well. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It says this. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, son's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, come from God and going back to God, rose from supper. He laid, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, 
Blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Lord God, we come today thankful for the, the privilege, the opportunity that we had to open up the very word of God or your word as you have revealed to us in scripture. And today as we study this, uh, this just amazing event in the book of John, I pray that you would give us clarity, wisdom, give us understanding and applying this text and understanding it correctly and then applying it to our lives today. Lord, I ask that you would be with me as I teach, as I speak, or guide my, uh, my words, the things that I say, Lord. And I pray that they would serve to encourage the church and to glorify your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So the main idea of our text today, which is also going to be on the screen, the main idea for today, if you remember nothing else, this is what I hope you remember. That the one who has been washed by Jesus Christ will follow his example of humble servanthood. I'll read that again. The one who has been washed by Jesus Christ will follow his example of humble servanthood. The title of my sermon today is Love, Humility, and Service. These are, these are three themes, three aspects that we see flowing out of our text today uh, is love, humility, and service as demonstrated by, by Jesus Christ. And as we start, I, I want to read for us an article, and some of you, if you are on Facebook at all and, um, and have friends who are Christians and into this kind of stuff, you've probably heard of the Babylon Bee. Uh, if not, the Babylon Bee is a, uh, is a kind of a satire Christian news article site. So they, they create these news articles that are fake, they're not real, they're, uh, they're satire, so they're funny, usually, is the intent. Um, but I want to read for us one of those real quick. Um, that I saw a few years back, and I think it's kind of funny, but the headline, Mission Trip to Hawaii, Flooded with Waves of Selfless Volunteers. It says this, and the Kansas City chapter of the non-denominational Global Evangelism Mission Board announced the largest volume of interest for a single short-term mission trip ever on Friday as over 12,000 selfless individuals volunteered for its upcoming mission trip to Hawaii. We've never had a response like this before, and we're simply overjoyed to see so many young missionaries with hearts to advance the kingdom of God. <laughs> Beaming missionary director Cassandra Campbell told reporters as she sifted through towering stacks of applications on her desk. We received applications from all over the greater metro area and surrounding suburbs, from altruistic humanitarians of all ages, races, and church traditions. <laughs> According to Campbell, only 30 spots were available on the trip, and volunteers would be selected at random to be considered for the evangelism and mission trip to the tropical island paradise. And then it concludes, at publishing time, the agency's planned mission trip to assist a homeless shelter and share the gospel among the downtrodden in downtown Detroit had been canceled due to lack of interest. Wow. So this is kind of a, kind of a funny, uh, funny article, I think. But, and we recognize the satire in it, right? We recognize the, the foolishness of this article in that clearly these people who were selflessly volunteering for this mission trip to Hawaii were not at all selfless, right? But clearly they, they were not. Uh, in fact, the, the selfless people would have been the ones volunteering to go help a homeless shelter in Detroit, right? Uh, and so we recognize the satire in this article. However, I do think that this article gets at the heart of something that's true in many of our churches today, true in the lives of many Christians today. 
It's unfortunately a pretty common phenomenon that occurs in many churches today where people want to be perceived, right, as kind, as loving, as selfless, as giving. And one way they see an opportunity to do this is by going on a short-term mission trip, right? Seems pretty easy. I just give, you know, buy my plane ticket, get, make my way over there, and this will be my demonstration of selflessness. And so they see this as an opportunity to go on a short-term mission trip, preferably someplace nice and warm and tropical, and get some good pictures of themselves with the local kids there, right, so that they can post it on their Facebook or their Instagram to demonstrate to the world just how selfless they are, right? And, and you can go ahead and laugh, like it's fine, but we recognize this trend, right, and we see it. We know that this is something that happens. These quote-unquote selfless people are looking for ways to be perceived as selfless without actually being selfless, without actually doing what is necessary in making the sacrifices. They go and do these things. Meanwhile, they spend their day-to-day -day lives focused entirely on themselves. And it's become far too easy for us to read this story in the book of John of Jesus getting down and washing the disciples' feet and it's so easy for us to just completely divorce that, completely divorce any application of this story from our day-to-day -day lives, or even divorce it from ourselves altogether. But in this text, Jesus brings the concept of selflessness right down to the level of the mundane, everyday aspects of our life. Right down to the day-to-day -day events. And he presents us with a model of what true selfless servant leadership looks like. And we start in verse 1, which is also point number 1, with Jesus' motivation for why he does this. Notice in the second half of verse 1, what does it say? It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Honestly, this, that statement right there here in, in John 13, chapter 1, could be kind of the banner, the billboard over which all of Jesus' life and ministry, both everything that he's done so far and everything that he will continue to do at this point, this could be the banner over all of that, representing why he has done it all, his motivation for the whole of it. This opening statement gives us the motivation for what Jesus has done previously and for what he's going to do here in this chapter and what he's going to do moving forward. And this motivation was his love for his own, his love for his disciples. Jesus' love for his disciples is on display throughout all of the Gospels, right? I mean, we, we can read throughout the entirety of the, of the Gospels, and we see Jesus' love for his disciples. But I think that John, in his Gospel, puts the love that Jesus had for his disciples on, a, on display in such a way that is unique from the other Gospels. He puts it in a way that especially emphasizes the intimacy that Jesus had with his disciples. And we see this in the very way that he structures the book, right? Uh, so we're right now in chapter 13, which kind of starts the second half of the book of John. But so far, verse chapters 1 through 12, this about half, the, about half the book has covered the entirety of Jesus' ministry thus far. All of it. Everything that, that we see uh, Jesus doing is, is covering a span of, of about three years, right? The entirety of Jesus' ministry is covered in the first half of the book. John then takes the entire second half of the book, nine whole chapters, and slows everything down and uses nine whole chapters 
just to cover the last few days of Jesus' life, the last few days of his life here on earth. More than that, he takes, uh, starting in 13 and, and the following uh, chapters, he takes five chapters specifically describing the events in the hours leading up to Jesus' arrest. Time spent directly with his disciples. He focuses exclusively in these five chapters on Jesus' teaching and his care for his own disciples. And at the conclusion of these five chapters, in chapter 17, that being the high priestly prayer, where Jesus prayed specifically for his disciples and for us, all who would come after and follow him. So I think in this way, John especially uh, causes us, kind of leads us to marvel at the intimacy that the particular kind of love that Jesus has for his disciples, that he has for his own. And this verse here in chapter 13, verse 1, I think is, is inserted here, not, not by mere accident, but it is essential in helping us understand why Jesus does what he is about to do in this chapter and over the next few days. He does so because of his love for his own, because he loves his own and loves them to the end. This phrase, to the end here, uh, can, can very clearly refer to the end that is coming right now, right? The, that the death of Jesus Christ is, is imminent, and his time here on earth is coming to an end, right? At least for now. Uh, and, and certainly this phrase can use, be used to refer to that end. But I think in addition, and, and other commentators would, would support me in this, uh, that this phrase, he loved them to the end, also has a greater meaning uh, a deeper meaning, meaning that he loved them to the utmost. He loved them to the fullest. That he, he could not have loved them any more than what he loved them. He could have no more love for them than what he has. And clearly demonstrates this by his work on the cross on their behalf and on our behalf. And this love for them is on full display over the next few days. And particularly, as we'll see in this very awkward scene which follows, which is point number two. And it, and it was indeed an awkward scene. You know, it's easy for us being outside of the situation to not see kind of the, the weirdness of what's going on here in, in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. But this is a weird scene that's happening in verses two through five. And Jesus is no stranger to awkward scenes, Right? I mean, they were really somewhat commonplace in Jesus' ministry, even what we see depicted in the Gospels, recorded there. Everything from demon possessions to a man being lowered in through the roof in this house to a prostitute crying on Jesus' feet and wiping his feet with her hair. Right? The, the, it's, it's commonplace, really, in, in the Gospels to see awkward things happening around Jesus and his disciples. Moments that when the people around them see it, they're, they're kind of a little bit caught off guard. But I think that this event stands out as, as unique in my mind for multiple reasons. But one particular reason is that this event, this scene that we have here, this awkward moment, is initiated by Jesus. Jesus is the one that kind of creates this awkward scene. Many of the other awkward moments in, in the life and ministry of Jesus were kind of happening to him, right, or, or brought about by someone outside of, of their group. But this is initiated by Jesus himself, and it is absolutely amazing because Jesus puts him out there, gets down on his hands and knees without regard for his 
reputation or for his standing in the world without regard for it. Now, if you don't know much about the practice of, of foot washing, that's probably because you live in the year 2020 where we don't really wash each other's feet, right? Um, but the practice of foot washing was an essential thing in this day because of, of the day and age that they were living in. They didn't wear shoes the way we do today, right? They wore, uh, they wore sandals, right? So their feet were constantly exposed to the elements as they were walking to and fro, going about their daily business on these dirt roads. Their feet would get dirty, dusty, muddy, and animals were also using the road. So you can draw conclusions from that as well of, of other things that were certainly on their feet. And so when you would go into a, a house, someone's home or, or certain buildings, there would oftentimes be a basin outside uh, so that someone could wash your feet before you went in so that you didn't track mud and dirt and, and crud all into the house, right? But this, this task of foot washing was something that was always reserved for the lowest among them, right? The lowest in society. It was a job that was oftentimes done by a servant or, or a slave or whoever was lowest among the group because it was a job that no one wanted to do. It was a job that was nasty. It was a job that was dirty, and it was a job that honestly required very little skill. And so it was considered to be something reserved for the, for the lowest to do. And then notice the detail in which John begins to write this section of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. In verses 4 and 5, we see this. That Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John begins now in this section to almost like write in slow motion, right? Emphasizing every single detail of the event that was going on. And I think he does this particularly to emphasize the, the weirdness of what was going on. To emphasize the drama that was unfolding before the disciples' eyes. That God incarnate, the one through whom all things are made and all things hold together, was now doing the humiliating and nasty task of washing his disciples' feet. I almost guarantee you that you have never seen, nor will you ever see, any leader from any nation or government or kingdom here on earth do anything like this. And what should that tell us? This is something we would never see any earthly leader or, or ruler or governor or, or even president do, and yet we see... Jesus Christ, God incarnate, doing this. That should clue us into a few things. First of all, and, and foremost, it should tell us that the kingdom of God is completely unlike the kingdoms here on earth. It is unlike any kingdom here on earth. This represents a model of leadership that is foreign to the world that we live in. Here we see the concept of servant leadership, a term that honestly to most of us might even sound like an oxymoron. Certainly to the world around us, it sounds like an oxymoron. You don't become a leader through serving, and certainly you don't expect your leaders to get down and, and serve you. It's like opposite ends, right? Yet this is what leaders look like in the kingdom of God. Servant leaders. I, I heard one quote one time, and I think there's some truth to this, that, uh, that in the church, in Christianity, we don't really need leaders who serve Rather, what we need are servants who lead, right? 
Because that should be the defining mark of a leader. And in fact, it is the defining mark of anyone who wishes to be great in the kingdom of God. Christ says in the book of Luke, whoever exalts himself will be humble. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Right? We see this theme of, of only those who humble themselves are exalted in the kingdom of God or great in the kingdom of God. He says also in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness being a virtue that is, that is considered to be great in the kingdom of God, and those who are meek will inherit the earth. I heard one, one rapper say time, one time in one of his songs, a Christian rapper, uh, he said uh, that a lot of people think being meek is weak. Well, if you do, you should try being meek for a week, right? Because it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to humble yourself. Pride is our natural state. It's what we are naturally tending towards is to boost ourselves, to talk about ourselves, to better ourselves, to make our way in the world. But that's not the, the model that Christ has set out for greatness in the kingdom of God. In fact, even in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, Moses, one of the greatest leaders of all time in, recorded in Scripture or elsewhere, who led the people of God out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and led them through the wilderness. Do you know how Moses is described in, in Numbers chapter 12? He's described as the most humble man on earth. Most humble man on earth. One of the greatest leaders of all time, and the, his defining mark was his humility. So I wonder who wrote this, right? Because Moses wrote the Pentateuch. He wrote the, the first few books of the Bible. And yet here he apparently is saying about himself he's the most humble man on earth. I know it sounds really counterintuitive, but, uh, but I digress. Uh, but, but all of this is pointing to the reality that greatness in the kingdom of God, unlike the kingdoms of men, requires selfless humility and servanthood. It's important that we not miss this point, that this is what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. This is what is expected of us. We must not miss this point. But there is another point that I think we need to make as well. And, and I think I would be remiss as I preach through this text if I didn't at least let you know that there are really two main points in this text that we have read today. There's really two main points. There's, there's the main point of of the, the theme of servanthood, of humility, of, of service to, to those around us. And this is one of the main points. We are not wrong to draw this as a, as a main idea or an application. Uh, in fact, that's what I intend to do. But I think we would be remiss if we didn't also point to the important lesson on salvation that Jesus makes in verses 6 through 10, which is point number three. One commentator points out the unfortunate reality that uh, that the theological application of the foot washing scene is oftentimes neglected in, in favor of the practical application. That the theological application is a lot of times ignored or cast aside for the sake of the practical application. And I think this is true. I, I think I would be participating in this if I didn't at least uh, lead us to this point, draw attention to this fact that, that there is a greater lesson that is also being taught here in this story. That we need not only draw the practical applications from this, but also the theological implications that Jesus gives to Peter in this section. In the midst of this awkward situation where Jesus is down washing his disciples' feet, he's taken off his outer garment, wearing nothing but his, his undergarments then, right? Puts on a towel, humiliating himself, washing his disciples' 
feet. And in the midst of this, Peter seems to be the only one bold enough to like speak up and address the elephant in the room, which is Jesus washing their feet. So in typical Peter fashion, he almost rebukes Jesus, right? He almost rebukes him saying that he will not let him wash his feet. And this seems like a fairly honest and a pretty understandable response that Peter would have, knowing already who Jesus is, making a right confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think it's understandable that Peter would stand up and say, this isn't right. Seeing what Jesus is doing in his eyes to be almost shameful, bordering on shameful that you would get down and do this. But in the interaction that follows between Peter and Jesus, the Lord makes it a very important point that we need to see. He doesn't simply rebuke Peter, tell him to sit down, let him teach his lesson. But Jesus takes this opportunity to teach an important lesson regarding salvation. In verses 8 through 11, we see this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who was bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. We see here that Jesus, uh, and, and the point that Jesus makes to Peter and the rest of the disciples, is he connects the symbolism of foot washing and of bathing to the Christian life and to cleansing from sin. Within this connection that Jesus draws, he makes a clear distinction as well between bathing which represents the, the washing of regeneration that takes place at the moment of salvation and the washing of your feet. He makes a clear distinction between the two of these, saying that Peter needs his feet washed but does not need to bathe. He doesn't need his whole body washed. He is already bathed and therefore is already clean. Jesus is clearly making a point here that the bathing that he talks about that Peter has already gone through, that he has already been through, represents Salvation. This is rather encouraging for Peter, I would think, right? At least looking back on the situation to know Jesus said, you are clean. You have been bathed. You are saved, Peter. And we know that Jesus is making this distinction. We know he's saying that bathing represents salvation because of the fact that he excludes Judas, right? He says, not all of you are clean referring then to Judas. His point here wasn't to, to point out Judas and say, man, you stink, right? That wasn't the point he was making. He wasn't telling Judas he needed to go take a bath and wash the, the filth and the, the smell off. No, the point that Jesus was making was that, was that Judas was not one of his own. He was a disciple, one of the 12, yet Judas had never been washed, had never been clean. He was not regenerate. And so it's important for us to make this distinction then that what the, the washing of feet represents is not salvation. That's the bath that Peter has already had, has already done. But what does it represent then? What does the washing of feet represent? I would argue, I would contend that, that the washing of our feet represents confession of sin. And I think that we can see this when we connect it to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. 
1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This speaking to believers, right? This isn't, this isn't a, a, a letter written to unbelievers, but to a church that thought they were without sin. Who John writes to to say, no, you are not without sin. Anyone who says so is a liar. But we have all sinned. But then the word of hope is this. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think we can clearly see then that the Christian life is one that is marked by a continual washing away of sin, the removal of dirt that we pick up walking through this life. And if this is not true of you, if you are not regularly confessing your sin, then you have no place with Christ. In fact, you still probably need a bath. You've never been bathed. Washing your feet is going to do you no good when you're covered in filth. If you are not regularly confessing your sin, as he says of Peter, you have no place with me. You are in the same state as Judas. Confession of sin is a necessary part of our sanctification. There's a, a friend of mine, it's actually Josh's dad, who's, Josh's dad isn't here, Josh is here, but uh, his name's JD, and I, uh, I was having a conversation with JD one time, and we were talking about uh, differing perspectives on, on sanctification, and there are some who believe sanctification is something that you can achieve fully here in this life, that you can be without sin here on this earth, which I say is rubbish, that's not true, you, you, we can never live a sinless life here on this earth. But in, in this conversation that, that J.D. was having with this, with this pastor who believed this, he asked J.D., he said, well, let me give you an example. He said, can I walk from here to the door without sinning? And J.D. said, well, yeah, I guess so. He said, okay, can I walk from here to the parking lot without sinning? And J.D. JD said, well, yeah, I guess so. And he said, well, then just keep on walking. All right? That's, that's, I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? And J.D., at the time, he was, he was younger, and he was kind of like, oh, makes sense. I guess he's got a good point. I don't know. I guess I could walk from here to the door without sinning. But then J.D. said to me, he said, you know what I would tell him now if I was there? He, if he asked me today if I could walk from here to the door without sinning, I would say no. No, we can't. We can't do anything in this life apart from sin. We can never do anything in any sort of sin vacuum, in any space that is void of sin as long as we live here in this fallen world. Sin is a part of who we are. It is something that we, that as long as we are here on this earth, we can never be totally free of. It's not something that we embrace. It's not something that we accept and, and celebrate or just say, eh, I'm okay with it. No, we're called to put to death the sinful flesh, right? We're called to confess our sin. But we see clearly in John, 1 John 1, 8, right before the passage I already read, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We cannot walk from here to the door apart from sin. We can't do it. It is a part of us. So we are called, therefore, to, in this case, wash our feet, which represents the regular confession of sin and subsequent cleansing from the dirt and the grime that we inevitably, inevitably pick up in this life. If you are not regularly confessing your sin, it doesn't have to be to a priest, it doesn't have to be to a pastor. I do think there's good biblical evidence to say it should be to a brother or sister in Christ. 
But if you're not doing this regularly, then you have no part with Christ. As we move along, we look down to verse 12, point number four, that the example has been set. There are some denominations that, uh, that believe that Jesus' command here to wash each other's feet is to be taken literally. And in light of this, they practice as one of their ordinances of their church the act of washing each other's feet. It's, it's built into their, to their church. Now, I don't think that's the way this passage should be taken. I don't think we are, are literally required to get down and wash each other's feet. I disagree with them on kind of that uh, that point, whether or not this command is to be taken literally in washing each other's feet. However, I do at least admire the fact that, that this passage bears itself in the life of their church. I can at least respect that. Because in too many of our churches today, and I think we would be foolish to think we as Redeemer Fellowship Church were exempt from this, this passage doesn't bear itself at all. We don't see any application of this passage coming to the forefront in our churches today. Like I said at the beginning, I think it's important that we, that we not separate ourselves from the practical outcome of Jesus' teaching. In this passage in particular, that Jesus is not challenging his disciples to spend one week out of the year or, or a few hours out of the week doing one selfless thing, no matter how big or dramatic that thing is. What he expects of us is that we give our lives over to the service of our brothers and sisters in Christ. A sacrificial servant life is what we are called to, which means that every moment of every day, we ought to be operating out of the mindset of what can I do for others? What do others need of me right now? What can I do for my brothers and sisters today? How can I serve them? This ought to be a continual thought process for us. We ought to be continually thinking through how we can do this. And this is true even when it's awkward or even when it costs us something like our time, our energy, our money, or in Jesus' case, even our dignity. Because we all sit here and we will easily amen that. We will easily say, oh, yes, absolutely, we should sacrifice those things for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yet how often when we are even asked to get up a little bit early to give someone a ride to church, do we say, gosh, that's so much. You're asking too much of me. Or to give up a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday morning to go and, and serve in one area or another. And even though we might say it, or we might not say it out loud, we might think it in our head. But we, we oftentimes think that this is just too much, asking too much. We come, if we come at all, we become irritated and angry that we are expected to serve. Yet this ought to be our life. This ought to be something that consumes us a desire to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus says, by this the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But this call, this challenge, also comes with an important promise. And we see that promise in verse 17 of John 13. The concluding verse of this says, If you know these things, blessed are you, if you do them. We see Jesus giving a, a promise, a, a promise of blessing to those who engage in this activity. As I've already said, the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. 
Here on earth, it's widely believed that joy comes not from serving others, but from being served by others, right? The idea of luxury, even in areas of, of dining and living, typically entails getting rid of all the work on us and getting someone else to do all the work for us, right? Even to the point of having someone lay a napkin on your lap when you're at a restaurant, which I've always thought was really awkward and weird. But they do this. If you go to like really nice restaurants, right, they put the napkin on your, on your lap for you. Man, that makes you feel lazy. But, but it's weird. But this, this is the reality, though. The idea of luxury and of, of finding joy here in this life is, is with regards greatly to getting rid of any duties, any effort on yourself and having everyone else do them for you. We see examples of this also in, in maids and butlers and so on and so forth. But if frugality has attested to anything over time, it's shown that the only thing that that will ever bring, that kind of lifestyle, that kind of expectation of having others do for you, the only thing that will ever bring is a sense of temporary happiness or a fleeting moment of euphoria or just a passing pleasure, but not true joy. And this is no surprise to anyone in here, I'm sure. That, that true joy does not come from being served, but from serving. But this is the truth of Scripture. And experience, really. This is the truth that we know, that it is uh, that true and lasting joy actually comes through serving other people. Why is this? The reason is because you are never more like Christ than when you are serving others. You are never more like Christ than when you're serving others. This is why the person who does this is blessed, as Jesus says here in 17. Because to serve others is to imitate Christ, which is what we as believers are called to. It is living in the fullness of what he has called us to. It's, it's the answer to the question that people ask, what's God's will for my life? I mean, there's lots of answers that we could give directly from Scripture. Never the answers people want. But one of the answers, right, is to serve other people. Sacrifice, serve, get on your hands and knees for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't want to leave us. I think there is, a, there is an easy tendency in many sermons from many texts, but, but there's an easy tendency for us to talk purely kind of about like ethereal themes of what it means to do these things and never kind of give actual practical examples of what this looks like. But I want to give for us just some, a few practical examples. And this is not an exhaustive list. There are plenty of other ways to serve those around you, to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. But, but just a, a few simple ways that I know of off the top of my head when I was preparing the sermon are, are giving rides to people. You know, there's plenty of people that have no way to get to church. I would love to have a ride to church. Giving rides to people. I've been so encouraged by some of our college students over the past like year, year and a half. I know that if I ever meet a college freshman who has no car, no way to get to church, I've got like five people off the bat that I can call that go to USI that will gladly give them a ride to church. Mm. This, is, this is one easy example of servant leadership. Another would be opening up your home to your brothers and sisters in Christ. People who we are happy to call family until they want to come over and have dinner. And then, eh, now you're strangers, right, at that point. But this is an easy way. Sharing food. You can do that in your home, Right? You can do it for those who, who have had a baby or have a hard time. And, and, and we kind of recognize that and do that. But I think it's something we can do all the time, 
right? And, and then finally, and this was, this was one of the most important ones that I think we need to, to recognize. Some of us in here don't have the ability to share any of those things that I just said. Some of us don't have a car to give people a ride. Some of us don't have a house that we can invite people to and bless them in that way. Some of us don't have the money to, to buy food for people. But I promise you something that each and every one of us can do, and I also promise you that each and every one of us would say we don't do this the way we should, is that we can pray for one another. This is a really good one, even though it's hardly ever done. We pray for one another. And before you, you, you think that, oh, well, that's not, yeah, I can pray. Sure, I can pray, but anyone can pray for someone, but that's not like the real service. No, that's not true. Because I would, I would ask you to ask yourself, first of all, is your prayer like what it should be? And I would argue most of us would say no. I would say no. Most of us would say no. But then even beyond that, when you do pray, how often, what percentage of your prayer is about you and your needs and what you want? I would argue it's pretty high, right? So what I think we're called to do, each and every one of us, regardless of other things, other means that we have to bless and serve others, we ought to be praying for one another. This mind of what do my brothers and sisters in Christ need, what can I do for them today, ought to just infest our prayer life to where we are consumed with the concerns of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That will flow out into service of other people. So as we close today, I would encourage you to ask yourself these questions. How often do I think about these things? How often do I think about the needs of my fellow church members, my brothers and sisters in Christ? How often do you think about these things? Maybe the question for you today is, do I have any connection to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you a member of a church where you can grow and serve and bless and be blessed? Because if not, I would encourage you, go back, go onto our website or our app, and find last week's sermon that Matt gave on membership because he did a fantastic job on explaining the purpose, the joy, the necessity of church membership from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If it is true that we are called by God to commit to loving and serving the body of Christ, which it is, and we are, if that is true, then we have to be connected to the body of Christ. We cannot serve the body of Christ without being connected to the body of Christ. Yep. It's impossible. It's just that simple. Mm -hmm. And it sounds simple when I say it. And yet so many of us are so quick to, to push away mm -hmm. from the connection to the body of Christ mm -hmm. that he has called us to. So I implore you today, do not think of this call to servant leadership as something that is to be done periodically or a box to be checked but understand it in the way that Jesus demonstrated it. A lifestyle committed to serving your brothers and sisters in matters of day-to-day -day life, even in the mundane. This is not a big concept that we think about when we think about mission trips or when we think about the, the one day a week that we go and serve at the soup kitchen. This is something that should consume our everyday life and the very things that we do from day to day. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the reason that we have for being here today, which is Jesus Christ and his love for us even to the end. His love for us to the point that he drove to the cross to face your wrath. 
Lord, we ought to be just completely and utterly flabbergasted at that reality, blown away. And yet, Lord, because of our sin that we are fighting against every day, even that becomes mundane. Even that becomes pushed to the side and forgotten. Lord, may that not be so. May we read this passage here today and be reminded, Lord, not only of your call upon our lives to go and serve and be a servant leader to those in our church and in our communities, but Lord, let us remember what you have done on the cross in order to wash us from our sins. And may we, in light of that, continually confess our sin before you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at this time. And if you are new to Redeemer Fellowship,